While I was on vacation this past week, I uh, read G. Gordon Liddy's autobiography, which he entitled Will, and I was struck by a comment that he made about Chuck Colson and his conversion. Uh, he said to one of his uh, co-conspirators in the uh, Watergate break-in, now we're in big trouble, he said. If Colson would run over his own grandmother for Nixon, imagine what he'll do for Jesus. <laughs> and when I read that, I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Paul because he had that same relentless, tenacious loyalty. The uh, measure of his loyalty to Judaism was the measure of his loyalty to Christ. As a matter of fact, in Philippians 3, when he's comparing and contrasting his life before Christ and after, he says one of the characteristics of his pre-Christian days is that he was zealous in his persecution of the church. And then a bit later, in contrasting that with his new life in Christ, he says that he presses on after the, the, the prize, the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And the two verbs are the same. The uh, tenacity with which he pursued the church was the same tenacity with which he pursued his relationship to Christ. And I'm sure the Jews in Jerusalem could have said, if Paul would run over his grandmother for the high priest, imagine what he will do now for Jesus. In thinking about it, I don't really think that our personalities change a great deal when we become Christians. There are some things that have to go because they're contrary to the character of Christ, but uh, I don't think our personalities change a great deal. The same energy is channeled in a different direction. That's all. And I think that's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. And it's perhaps nowhere seen more clearly than in chapter 9, the passage that we have before us this morning. Acts 9, verse 19. Now, as Brian, I'm sure, pointed out last week, the verse division is in precisely the wrong place. The paragraph actually begins with the second line of verse 19. Now, for several days, he, that is Saul, as he was known in those days, or as we know him, the Apostle Paul, was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Saul, as you know, was on his way up to Damascus bearing letters of reference from the high priest in Jerusalem, giving him authority to arrest and extradite Christians from Damascus down to Jerusalem for trial. But uh, midway on his journey and midway through the day, he was literally arrested by the Lord. He, he saw a vision of the risen Lord. And his whole life was changed. He was turned 180 degrees in a new direction. He didn't go back to Jerusalem. He continued on to Damascus, but his, his life was different from that, that point on. He went on to Damascus. Ananias laid hands on him. He received his, his sight. His new faith sprang up. 
Baptism was administered, and immediately Luke says he began to preach in the synagogues. Apparently there were a number of them in Damascus, and we know in those days there were probably as many synagogues in large cities as there are churches in our, in our cities today. And Paul, since he was a rabbi, had access to all of them. He was going from one place to another teaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, we mustn't understand by that title that Paul, at this point in his career, realized that Jesus was God. For myself, I'm convinced that he is, but the term itself does not imply deity. It's not a divine uh, name for Jesus. It was used by the Jews as a messianic title, a royal title. The king was called the Son of God. It goes back to 2 Samuel 7 and the promise to David and his seed that God would be their father and David and his descendants would be God's sons. And then in Psalm 2, God says to David, you are my son. This day I have begotten you. So when Paul was preaching that Jesus is the son of God, all he knew at this point was that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, Paul knew the Old Testament far better than you and I would, will ever know it. He was a rabbi. He thoroughly understood the Old Testament, but he didn't yet see how Jesus' life and ministry and teaching correlated with the Old Testament. All he knew was the simple fact that Jesus was the Messiah. He probably knew Jesus. He had almost certainly heard him preach on the streets, and he says to the Corinthians that he did know Jesus in the flesh, but he didn't know much about him. He hadn't had time yet to put all the facts together. But Luke tells us that after a time... In verse 22, as he increased in strength, he was confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. And here he uses a word that means to put two things together. And it appears that at this time in his ministry, he began to show how the Old Testament predictions were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. So the question is, where did he get all this information? He starts in Damascus teaching just the simple bare facts and uh, apparently after a period of time, he's able to confound the Jews with his, his unbeatable logic and his profound understanding of, of the nature and ministry of, of the Messiah. Where did he come from? We said, well, he got into one of Ananias' Bible studies. They had a joint heirs class in, in one, of the, one of the synagogues or one of the churches in Damascus. And Paul joined. No, it's not where he got his information. Paul's very clear. No one ever taught Paul anything except Jesus. He goes back to that fact over and over again in the New Testament. He didn't get his instruction from any man. He got it from Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what gave him authority as an apostle. That's why he had the same authority as the other 11. His apostleship was always questionable because he wasn't one of the regulars. He wasn't one of the original 12. He hadn't been with Jesus from the beginning, that is, from the baptism of Jesus to the resurrection. So where did he get the information? Well, he, he was taught by Jesus himself in another setting. And Paul tells us what that was in Galatians 1. Will you turn there with me, please? Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. And then he explains in verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it 
through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about his former, as he describes it, his former manner of life in Judaism. He had no contact with Christians then, not any intimate contact. His concern was to advance in Judaism, as he says in verse 14. But, in verse 15, when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his Son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, now, what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying. See what Paul is saying? He received no instruction from any man, not even an apostle. He only saw Peter for a brief period of time, and he didn't go there to learn from Peter. He went there to tell Peter what he already knew, so Peter and the other apostles would, would accept him. He does tell us, I believe, where he received his instruction. He said, there was a period of time when I was in Arabia. After the Lord called him, he began to preach in Damascus, and then he went out into Arabia to the southeast of Damascus, and he was in Arabia for a period of about three years, and then he says, I returned to Damascus. And when he came back to Damascus, it was after that three-year period when he was cloistered with the Lord himself. All the historical data, all of the, the theological facts that Paul gained about the Christian faith, he, he received by revelation from the Lord. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, with regard to the events in the upper room, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that our Lord on the day in which he was betrayed took the bread and said, this is my body which is for you. And he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is the, the covenant, the new covenant in my blood. He says, I received all of that from the Lord. Those events took place in the upper room where only the eleven and Jesus were gathered. Paul was not there. How did he know? Well, the Lord told him what happened. And can you imagine what Peter must have felt when Paul went to his house in Jerusalem and told him what had happened in that secret meeting with Jesus and the eleven apostles? Paul knew because he'd been taught by the Lord himself. I think it's significant that he was there for three years because that was precisely the period of time in which the Lord trained, his, uh, trained the, the twelve. So Paul is in Arabia being taught of the Lord and he comes back to Damascus and he's convinced he's going to turn the place upside down and he did, but not in the way in which he intended. In verse 23, back in Acts 9 now, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. He came back, began to preach. The Jews began to plot his death. Though he apparently knew of these, uh, these attempts on his life, he did nothing to protect himself. The church decided they had to protect him, and they had to protect the church. And so uh, in the middle of the night, they bundled Paul off to a house located along a wall. Normally, these houses were built, at, built right against the city walls with windows in the walls. And they put Paul in a fish basket. That's the way he describes it later. Lowered him over the wall, and Paul ran for his life through the darkness like a rabbit. Well, perhaps things would go better in Jerusalem. 
But in verse 26, we're told that when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Three years later, he's been a Christian now for three years. With all this information, he's ready to impart. He wants to teach someone. He goes to the church in Jerusalem, and they, they, they were frightened. Now they're wet. They didn't want anything to do with him. How would you feel if Madeline Murray O'Hare showed up at, at your growth group this coming week? Oh, yeah, I'm sure you would accept her, but you might feel a little awkward having her there. And um, that's what people were thinking. Can he be trusted? Is this conversion real, or is he a spy? Good old Barnabas intercedes for him in verse 27. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus and he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord and he was talking and arguing with Hellenistic Jews but they were attempting to put him to death. Barnabas was Paul's good friend throughout much of his life. We encountered Barnabas at an earlier time in our study. He's this uh, man with such a great servant's heart who plays a supportive role time and time again in the, in, in the ministry of the apostles, first with Paul and then with Mark. And now he runs interference for Paul, introduces him into the church in Jerusalem, and Paul begins, as Luke says, to move freely in and out of Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. But in verse 30, when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. The church began to think, we've got to do something to bring about peace in Jerusalem. <laughs> what, what can we do to restore order? And so they put Paul on board a ship in Caesarea, conveyed him under cover of darkness again, I'm sure, over to Caesarea, put him on a boat, sent him home. And for 10 years, Paul drops out of sight. We know from the book of Galatians that he was preaching in Syria and in Cilicia, but there's no glory, only, only the grind. The hardest place in the world is to live out the gospel in your own home. Paul's parents were Pharisees, we know. The strictest sect of Judaism, Orthodox Jews, certainly they must have rejected him, disinherited him. It's always been interesting to me that Saul was poverty-stricken because he was a member of aristocracy. He had to work with his hands, had to make tents to support himself, and I think it's because he was cut off from his family. He may at this point have lost his wife. It's almost certain that Paul was married at one point. One had to be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin, but this may be when his wife turned her back and walked away, and that's why Paul later says that he had suffered the loss of all things for Christ's sake. It was tough. Hardest years of his life. Ten long years of living out the life of Christ in his hometown before people who had rejected him. It's tough. I have a good friend, Harry Hoffner, whom I met in seminary, who, when he was a senior at UCLA, became a Christian. His family was Orthodox Jewish family. When he went home and told them that he had converted to Christianity, they refused to speak to him from that point on. They, they sent all of his letters back unopened. They bought a casket. They bought a burial plot. And they buried him, and there's a tombstone there to this day with, with his name on it. He was completely rejected. And that's the sort of thing that, that must have happened to the Apostle Paul. Those were ten long, hard years until Barnabas, after that period of time, went up to Tarsus and found Paul and brought him back to Caesarea, and he was 
installed there as a teacher in that, in that church. But Luke does an interesting thing with the history. He gives us a clue to what's going on. Verse 31 actually begins with the conjunction, therefore, or for this reason. Verse 31 expresses the result of all the above. Now that Paul is out of town, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. In other words, the church got rid of this troublemaker. They got Paul out of town and then they could relax. Now Luke's history is, uh, is very straightforward. He's like Sergeant Friday. You just get the facts. That's all. He doesn't make too many moral judgments. But uh, Paul tells us in another place some of his, his thoughts at this time. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. <coughs> Pardon me, 2 Corinthians 11. <coughs> Let me give you a little bit of background of this passage. Paul's concern here was a set of a group of men whom Paul calls super apostles in Corinth. They uh, felt themselves superior to Christ's apostles. They would not submit themselves to the uh, teaching of the apostles. They're like those throughout the history of the Christian church who have written or spoken or implied in some way that their writings or their sayings uh, have greater authority than the New Testament and must be studied in order to understand the New Testament. We derive our authority from the apostles. So they elevated themselves above the apostles, uh, the apostles and said that their authority superseded theirs. And this was creating chaos in the church in Corinth. And so Paul is concerned. He's addressing this, this problem. And uh, what he does is to um, boast in a tongue-in-cheek manner of his own accomplishments as, a, uh, as an apostle. He says in verse 23, Are they these super apostle servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In other words, Paul is going to brag now about his credentials as an, as an apostle. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I spent in the deep and so forth. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but, but Paul's point is very clear. This is irony. I'm going to brag about my accomplishments and my credentials. You want to know what I brag about? Well, the times that the Jews beat me up, the times they threw me in jail, the nights that I treaded water waiting for somebody to rescue me. In other words, I'll, I'll boast about those things that show my weakness instead of my power and my authority. And then finally in verse 30, he says, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows I am not lying in Damascus. The ethnarch under Arthas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a fish basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Paul says, do you want to know my most embarrassing moment? It was the day that the church in Damascus decided they had to get rid of me and they put me in a fish basket and I ran through my life through the Syrian night. That's the day I glory in. That's my most embarrassing moment. We all have embarrassing moments, you know. I, sometimes we get together and talk about them, and I've mentioned before my most embarrassing moment 
is the time that I married uh, Steve and Holly Newman and, and uh, looked at her father as he was there to give her away and said, who gives this man to be married to this woman? <laughs> and a friend of mine, Sherm Williams, tells about the time that he married a couple and throughout the entire ceremony he referred to the bride by the name of the groom's former girlfriend. Holly's mother only gasped. I think that mother tried to kill him shortly after that. Paul <laughs> says, you want to know what my most embarrassing moment is? It was, it was the day that I had to run for my life. And Paul came back from Arabia full of enthusiasm and zeal for preaching the gospel. He was God's man for the job. Paul started learning theology when he was 12 years of age. That's when they started teaching rabbinics in those days. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great intellects of that, of that period. Gamaliel today is still quoted by Jews. His, his legal decisions are reported in Jewish literature and in the Talmud. He sat at his feet for years and learned from him, was his, own, was his disciple. Paul was a brilliant young man, strong personality, Many assets, many personal gifts, powerful individual. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That would be the equivalent of being a member of being on the uh, Supreme Court of the United States. He would be as well known as any of our Supreme Court justices. Had a great fervor for God. And he loved his people. On a number of occasions in his books, he, he talks about his love for the Jews and his willingness to sacrifice his own life if necessary for his people. Had the right heart, had the right attitude, had all the gifts. And as he came back from Arabia, he was probably reflecting upon his experience with the Lord and, and the immense amount of truth he had gained from, from Christ himself. And he thought he'd turn the city of Damascus upside down. And he did. He created a riot. He won all the battles, but he lost the war. He didn't win a single convert. He could conclu conclusively prove that Jesus was the Messiah. His logic was, was irrefutable. And he didn't gain a single convert. And after a while, the church said, we've got to get this guy to town. He's going to set the cause of Christ back 50 years. And they packed him off. They sent him running. And he went down to Jerusalem, and, and I'm sure he was depressed for a while, but he thought, well, I was just in the wrong place. That's all. Jerusalem is the place where I ought to be. That's the center of Judaism. That's where I'm known. And uh, as soon as I make contact with the church, I'll begin to preach. Who will evangelize the Jewish nation? The church wouldn't have anything to do with him. And some poor, humble, simple saint had to run interference for him. And then he began to preach, and they wanted to kill him. And the Christians said again, we've got to get this guy out of here. And not only do we have to get him out of town, we've got to get him out of the country. And they took him to Caesarea, and they sent him off. And then they had peace. And then they began to expand and prosper. And I believe Paul began to learn on that night a principle that you and I have to learn. It took him a long time to learn it, just as it takes us a long time to learn it. And it's this. That God is not at all impressed with our ability. We're trained almost from the moment of, of birth to think in terms of what we can do when the going gets tough, the tough get going. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. 
that somehow it's our zeal and our energy and our efforts that get the job done. It's our IQ. It's our academic training. It's the way we dress. It's the social group that we associate with. It's our culture. It's our education. It's our genetic makeup. Those are the things that make us powerful and effective. It's our wit, our humor, our personality. And we become Christians and we think all we have to do is turn on the charm and people will respond. Paul had to learn that God isn't at all impressed with those things. They're, they all can be used. They're all instruments to be used. But apart from reliance upon Christ, they are worth absolutely nothing. Jesus said, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. You know what the flesh is? We're accustomed to define the flesh in terms of vices, and it often is defined that way in, in the New Testament. The works of the flesh are adultery, fornication, and greed, and covetousness, and pride, and witchcraft, jealousy, and so forth. And those are vices. They are things that we need to judge and, and put away in Christ's strength. But the flesh basically is unaided humanity. That's all it is. It's just what we are apart from God. It's the way we're made up as men and women, apart from Jesus Christ. The way we look, the way we dress, the kind of mind God's given, the kind of personality you have. Everything that you are, naturally and apart from God, is the flesh. And when we go out to do some good thing, depending upon ourselves, it is just as fleshly as when we do some evil thing, apart from God. We can teach a Sunday school class, we can share our faith, we can disciple someone, we can be busy and active and seemingly productive. But if we're counting upon what we are, any aspect of our personality, our makeup, and we're operating out of the flesh, and as Jesus put it, it is the spirit that gives life, the flesh, profits, nothing. Not even a little bit, nothing. As a matter of fact, it's counterproductive. We may well set back the cause of Christ if we don't go out in a sense of dependence and reliance upon him. There's one other place where Paul refers to this principle. It's in Philippians 3. And with this, I'll close. Philippians 3, 3. We, Paul says, are the true circumcision. Perhaps not in body, but in spirit. Our flesh has been cut off. Who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our humanity. Though I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's pride of ancestry. Paul came from the right side of the tracks. He was culturally approved, socially approved. Paul says, doesn't count. As to the law of Pharisee, a pride of orthodoxy, he had his facts straight, knew and loved the Old Testament, believed in its authority. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that's pride of activity. He was involved. He was doing things religiously. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, that's pride of morality. And Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, whatever things seem to be gained to me, that is all the above. Those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and gained them and count them but rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ. Those things don't count. Use them, but don't abuse them. Employ them, but don't count on them. That's not where our power comes from. It's not by learning to intimidate people. It's not by trying to appear strong, aggressive. It's not the way we dress or the way we present ourselves or the power of our personality. Those things don't matter. The only thing that matters is the power of an indwelling Christ and relying upon Him. Now, it doesn't mean we're to be passive. Some of the busiest people I know are people that understand this principle. We don't have to wait around for God to activate us. We can act. What matters is our attitude. Are we, what are we counting on in the final analysis? What do we believe is producing the results? Is it our personality, our intellect, or is it God? I'm also not saying don't. I'm also saying don't go around and say, I can't do anything. Because we can. This is not a plea for feelings of impotence. Not at all. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the attitude is, I can't, he can, therefore I can. And we can in his strength do all things. Whatever is required of you in your home, in your family, in your office, wherever you are. Father, what a liberating truth this is, and yet what a frightening concept it is. We've been told all of our life that it all depends upon us. And then we discover that it all depends upon you. And it's hard to lean on you and rely upon another when we've relied upon ourselves for so long. Increasingly teach us, Lord, that without you we, we can do nothing in terms of producing fruit. We really want to understand this principle. We don't want it to defeat us. We don't want to feel impotent. But we need to know that, that we cannot do it apart from your strength. But with your strength, we can do whatever we have to do, whatever demand is placed upon us. And so we want to go out from this place free from feelings of inadequacy and resting in your sufficiency. Thank you that you're the one who has made us sufficient for all things. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.